0: Hello, this is Madeline from Midwife,
1: David Nance, Seth Graham, Keville, Mike from
0: Uniform, Lee Noble, Braden J.
2: Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Thomas Mellick on a Sunday morning following uh, watching Lake Mary play a morning meditation uh, session at the famed Firestone Bard Chapel in uh, on Stevens, Stevens College campus in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Thomas was in Columbia, and I was in Columbia for the Columbia Experimental Music Festival, where I had uh, helped... Uh, book of some acts as well as um, some of the kind of boots on the ground helping out with the festival. I had, uh, I was really excited to talk with Thomas. Um, I had booked him before at, uh, during the last year of the Gold Rush Music Festival, and uh, he had always struck me as very, uh, very thoughtful um, and somebody who I would love to know sort of where some of these songs and some of these sounds came from. The conversation was really delightful. There was a lot of uh, noise in in the chapel. One of the um, drawbacks of it being really amazing acoustically is that sound traveled from kind of all, all over um, in the chapel. But if you can kind of get through that and get through some of the poor audio quality from the recorder that I had, there's a really nice conversation in there where we discussed early musical memories, Um, some of his more prolific streaks uh, following some really tragic events that happened in his life. Thomas's music is otherworldly in in that sort of waking up or just drifting off to sleep sense. I was really um, really fortunate to be able to kind of spend the weekend hanging out with him and a a couple of other friends who I've only met a, a, um, a couple of times But we seem to be able to just kind of cut through years of uh, of not knowing each other and and kind of get down to what's important. So, yeah, once again, really, um, really happy with the way this conversation turned out, uh, barring quite a few technical problems and poor audio quality. So if you can get through that, it's a good conversation. Hall with Tom to the Weather Machine. I'm sitting here with Benoit Puillard in the Firestone Bar Chapel following a morning meditation guitar session with uh, Lake Mary as part of the Columbia Experimental Music Festival. Uh, the Firestone Bar Chapel was designed by the same dude who did the St. Louis Arch, and tonight we will be hearing Here and Now perform here. It's a pretty beautiful space. So, yeah, I'm um, here with Benoit and, um, uh Thomas, M- Thomas Mellick, not Meluk, I Mellick, mean, okay. <laughs> I'm
1: not it correctly correctly, so. <laughs> um,
2: Thomas Mellick mm-hmm. um, performed uh, a set on KOPN radio that will be archived and a set with Glenn Jones uh, last night. And yeah, so I'm super excited to be talking with Thomas, I've been a fan of Benoit Poulard-related music for quite some time now. Um, so I guess we'll just start with kind of like the basic questions. Um, where did you grow up and what were some um, some early sort of like musical memories that you have of stuff that was like playing in the house or some early like musical discoveries that you had?
1: Uh, well, I grew up <clears throat> in mid-Michigan. I uh, usually tell people East Lansing because that's spot but actually the, the two towns that i lived in uh, were okamas and hazlet uh okamas i was like 10 and then i moved to hazlet and went to high school there um they're, so they're both very small like five to six thousand people each and uh, lived on a lake in hazlet and um, my mom recently moved out of that house you don't need to know any of that but in any case um yeah so i uh, my mom's best friend they who she met at university or um, Michigan State University in, like, 1968, I think. Uh, Deborah Beachnaw was my piano teacher starting at the age of five. Um, and, you know, my my mom and dad are both um, interested in music, but neither of them are, uh, like, musically inclined necessarily. My dad had an acoustic guitar <clears throat> and used to um, bop around playing, like, Simon and Garfunkel songs in, in bars when he was um, a young buck, I think, like, before he went to Vietnam. And, uh, so feel the connection to what I do, and I certainly felt inspired by having a guitar around. I, I kind of uh, would pick it up uh, sneakily, I think I was not really allowed to touch it technically, but I, would, I knew it was. Ke- they kept it under their bed in their room, and I would like sneak it out if they weren't home and, and play it You know, resting on my lap, because I was too small to actually hold the body of the... it was a pretty big Dreadnought guitar. Um, so I took piano lessons for eight years, till I was 13, and by that point was much more interested in guitar and... Uh, even more than that, in drums, like I was just talking to uh, Tim, who I stayed with here, um, about playing his, his drum set when he and his wife were off at a chestnut festival yesterday, uh, and I felt real rusty because I haven't actually been able to sit down at a, at a drum kit in like two or three years at this point. And I was, that's a little bit sad, but it's also feeling you know kind of motivational. It's like I can't wait till the the day when I have a, a full on music room with a piano and a drum set again. Um, but you know, apartment living is. Not conducive to that. Um, not conducive to drumming. No, not at all. Uh, although my neighbors, when it has come up, don't seem to mind my guitar playing because it's generally, you know, pretty just mellow. I don't do a lot of like Van Halen shredding or any instrument even. Say. <laughs>
2: that that's interesting because your records are full of like eruption, you know, right, exactly. style <laughs> covers. Greatest, yeah.
1: Greatest title for a guitar solo ever. Uh, and I actually live uh, down the hall from. Professional opera singer, so I hear him belting, belting it out pretty frequently. Um, so anyway, yeah, back to childhood. I'm trying to think. It was pretty, it was pretty massively influential to be like I was born in 1984 and um, became pretty well hooked on MTV by the time I was five years old. I think and there was a lot of very yeah. inventive stuff uh, on there back then, and I, you know, I lament the loss of that. Like a lot of a lot of people of our generation, I think. But well, um, what were some
2: Videos favorite, you remember? I, I
1: usually say my first favorite song was uh Cannonball by the Breeders, which came in I think like 92, 93. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's no way I could put my finger on it as like an eight year old kid, but looking back, and it's still one of my favorite songs, um, it's just super weird. It's it, like there's not really a chorus or it's just like three different choruses that, yeah. that repeat in a cyclical like, way and it's like uh you know kim deal's voice is has that kind of breathy smokiness and i've like I've, i feel like that might have been like one of the f- um first vocal vocalists that i was really uh attracted to in terms of the, like, the aesthetics of her voice and probably a lot of the reason that i tend to prefer female vocalists these days like i i, I realized within the last couple of years that um you know, I mostly listen to instrumental music at home. I would say, like, repetitive kind of uh, what most people would say is wallpapery music, but it's just like kind of creates the right atmosphere for for living uh, for me. But then when I listen to vocalists, it's I would say 90% female vocalists, and you know, if it's a if it's a male vocalist, it'll be like Chet Baker or mm-hmm. somebody who's got a similarly kind of dulcet, smooth tone. I, I don't um, I don't anymore really have a whole lot of uh, interest in I don't know, I don't want to diss anybody, so I won't say any more than that, <laughs> certain, certain singers like Ben band, or bands that I used to listen to, hard, harder rocking bands with, with male, male front men, uh, just don't really do it for me anymore.
2: Um, but, you know, that's, that's part of growing up, I guess. Um. I remember a really um, important MTV discovery for me was uh, the Nirvana video for Heart Shaped Box. percent oh, yeah. scared me to death. <laughs> Like, we didn't have MTV in my house, like, we weren't allowed, and so. Did uh, Anton Corbin direct that one? Yes, yeah. And I remember revisiting that in, like, one of his, like, director like, box sets and, like, having, like, vivid flashbacks of, like, seeing that at, like, at friends' houses or, like, other places where MTV was allowed to be played and just, like, being, like, repulsed, and, but then also just, like, just totally drawn in. That's
1: an incredible, incredible song, too. Uh, wow. I was in the. I don't know how my mom was unaware, because, like, that's another thing. Uh, Nirvana was uh, probably my first favorite band. I remember mm. uh, I would have been seven when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, and I, I have a very vivid memory of hearing that on, like, a really crappy one-speakered little radio sitting on the kitchen counter of my friend's apartment, like, my radio, the apartment that he lived in with his parents in elementary school. And uh, I was just like, what is that? Had uh, I credit my older brother with... Um, getting me into Columbia House mail-order things. I know that racket. Those, I know uh, that racket well. Tapes for a penny. Yeah, yep. so I, I think by the time I was <laughs> 9 or 10 years old, I had a collection of, of like 100 or 150 tapes. Oh my god. And, um, of all of them. Yeah, but the ones I listened to most frequently were probably uh, Appetite for Destruction and uh, all the Nirvana records. All the tapes. But um, Yeah, I think uh, In Utero so different from the other yeah and there's just it's so raw and it's so wonderfully textured and i think that's probably like a, a foundational element of why i uh, am so attracted to having um, unusual textures and a little bit of kind of grit or grain in the mix um it just it makes it feel more human and there's like there's certain things on that record where in the background of uh uh, section of the song that's in between verses you just hear Kurt Cobain cough like just straight up you <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> know working out some, some phlegm and pardon my uh, reenactment
2: there but spot, it, spot on you know, like, spot on I was like
1: that is exactly who he is
2: that's great um, my, the first tape that I ever bought um, was actually Enigma Okay. do you remember, you remember Enigma uh,
1: vaguely,
2: yeah. yeah like a French new age mm-hmm. new age band that had like a couple of like radio hits mm-hmm. um yeah, um, I remember buying that tape with like the um, allowance money that I had, and um, turning it on, and um, it's like very, very like '90s New Age. Like the first track is like, like go to a dark room, light some candles, like sit in a relaxed position like and then let these sounds like overtake you and i'm like okay i guess this is like i've never like heard a tape like from like you know beginning to end i'm like i guess i gotta do it <laughs> like this is like instructions for like listening to all tapes i guess i don't know so
1: the ones where the, the drum programming is like yep
2: okay, yeah. and then that's, um, that's like and then oh yeah and then and then you had like the the synth come like or like, it, like it's like a flute like woodwind like
0: Wham, 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 wham.
2: And then like everything drops out, yeah. like yeah. The, the, the beat bit picks up, and like yeah. Yeah. They also had that hit like with the like Native American like singing. Okay. Um. I'm not gonna desecrate like, this chapel by like trying to <laughs> reenact that. Yeah, but yeah. Um. Did they? Did they was that the
1: song "Return to Innocence"? Yes. Right? Return. Yeah, that's it. Return, return to, innocence. Return to the innocence. Yeah. Um. Yeah.
2: I, my, I
1: think that's one Favorite songs. Yeah. Well it's
2: like what else sounds like that? You yeah. know, like that was on like Casey Kasem's like yeah. top forty radio. So so you you so you grew up in uh, in Michigan. Um how long did you stay there for?
1: Uh, well, I went to college at like age 18 to 22 and then moved out to Portland, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know, I actually have felt uh, the, the kind of college town overlap that you do between here in Columbia Missouri and uh, Ann Arbor and you know, places like Asheville, and there's just kind of, there's always a nice uh, energy, and, and then there's it's, it's that like you know, intellectual spirit crossed with, like, the the Broadway, you know. Sheer Bedlam. uh, What's that place called? The Field House. Yeah. I I realized last night there's a good reason they have, like, blaring bright spotlights on the inside, because there's just, like, this is a place where fistfights happen. Yeah, and, like, a SWAT team (laughs) (laughs)
2: on on the ready. Um, But,
1: yeah, I was also saying, this this building, I didn't realize, uh, was was that Hiro Sarnan? No, that's who's the designer of the St. Louis Arch that you're talking about? I don't know.
2: Firestone Bar? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I feel composed of the I do to do it randomly, but
1: I feel like, uh let's It's large That's correct.
2: Not Firestone Bar?
1: No, I think that's, really, that's
2: who it's named for. Okay. And uh, anyway, T- yeah. Thomas just did that really, really quickly on the smallest, like, iPhone from the future I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> but what was they gonna say? Oh, and I was remarking on how my, my mom would have totally just loved this building. This is the the kind of place. There's there are a few um, pieces of architecture in East Lansing that I, I I feel like are in the same kind of mid-century modern style. And I'm, I'm very much into this too, the kind of thin wood slats and all that. But um, yeah, I think growing up in the Midwest, uh, like like it does for anybody from the region, kind of instilled me with uh, both a good work ethic and kind of like a, a very uh, profound attachment to nature. So I feel, you know, I mentioned that the house I grew up in during my teen years was on a lake, but the one before that, like when I was much younger, uh, like toddler to, to like preteen years was, uh, had a forest for a backyard, like not a big one, but probably an acre or so. And I spent a lot of time back there and that's the first place I ever did any recording on tape. And like, I uh, spent my allowance on, like off-brand blank tapes from Target, you know, and just like record myself walking around on the leaves and uh, you know hitting sticks against trees or whatever, and I would record my mom singing in the kitchen, and, and I just love the idea of having a little catalog of like things I could revisit, if mm-hmm. it's, you know, or record a rainstorm for days when I feel like hearing. And uh, I, I thought like I invented field recording at that <laughs> point, but obviously I've found out since then that I, I did
2: not. Nobody, nobody sat on this before.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting though that like I remember. How exciting it was to to do that and, and feel like uh, I had this thing all to myself. Because you know, I would tell you, I, I don't really know if I even ever really told my friends about it. Because you know, friends at that age just like, would go play pickup games of baseball or like play NBA Jam on the Nintendo, like Super Nintendo, or whatever. And I'm off, you know, trying to trying to have a <laughs> moment. So hold on, guys.
2: <laughs> like I, I got to record this. This is. Um, so when, when you moved to Portland, um, what, what year was that? 2007. Okay. And what was, well, that, that's a good year to be in Portland.
1: It was awesome. Yeah. At the time when I got there, I, I felt like I had kind of missed what some people seem to be referring to as a, a golden era, but I've realized since then it was like, uh, I, I moved out of Portland in 2012, um, which is like right after Portland
2: premiered in mm-hmm.
1: Even though it's, you know, satire, this reminds me of me, and it's, it's very weird to go back there now, and I, again, don't want to, you know, diss anybody, but it, it seems like there's a, a very self-aware kind of preciousness. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, if There was a similar energy before, I, I felt like it was more... That I was aware of back then, the kind of like community spirit that I grew to really love. I think it's still there. Um, but it's just, you know, it's different things. Social media has changed a lot of stuff, obviously. Yeah. And, and, and I've seen that in Seattle uh, since living there the last six years as well. And i uh, looking forward to getting out of the city before too long, hopefully. I've been saying that for a couple of years. And I'm just, I, 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 you could say I'm dragging my feet, but I would say more that I'm just trying to kind of like make careful moves it's like a game of chess trying to see over the horizon a little bit mm-hmm. sometimes um, but I, n- I feel very at this point uh like city life or even sort of city life uh should be in the in the rear view pretty soon and i just want to work with my hands in the dirt basically and mm-hmm. looking at moving out to montana hopefully fairly soon within the next like 12 to 18 months awesome yeah um but anyway, I don't know. I,
2: I guess there was, there was more to say about well, I, childhood. If you, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, it's, I, it's, I seem to... I mean, I associate your music with, like, the Pacific Northwest, but I, there mm-hmm. seems to be a connection between, like, the heavily wooded areas of Michigan mm-hmm. and, like, the Pacific Northwest. Um, when you were in Portland, what were some of the things that were happening that, like... Um, had you been creating music under Benoit Poulard while in Michigan, or did that start in Portland?
1: Uh, yeah, the, the name first came about in 2004 because I, <clears throat> like, previously the, the uh, four-track tapes and, like, limited-run CDs that I made for my friends and family when I was in high school, uh, I didn't put any name on it, basically, I, I just, like, credited myself with my initials on the inside of the slave, and uh, cause I figured, like, people, anybody who is listening to this, I gave it to personally, and they know it's me, so I don't really have to put on any airs, but then by the time I was, uh, like, my friend Jacob showed interest in uh, putting a couple tracks on a compilation he was doing, It's was like, I guess I have to have a name, and then I looked through my notebook and found this, like, vaguely French name I had woken up and written down in the middle of the night wow. at one point, and that came out of a, a dream when I was, like, taking a bunch of French courses, and, uh, decided just to throw that on the CD, and kind of just stuck, because it, it never felt right to use my real name, because it's one of those things where, uh, at least a few people say this before where when you uh, make something and then listen back to it you're like did I just do that because it feels like somebody else did and I very, I very much have that feeling especially like last time I revisited my first record for Cranky which is now 12 years old I think it was, and what record I guess, was uh, pricey. okay Pre-C. Uh yeah I remember, I was, it was, at some point last year I felt uh, I was just like I should see if that's still any good and <laughs> I listened back to it and I was you know I was pleased to find that I don't really have any regrets about my choices on it. I really had no idea what I was doing, because I had just switched from recording on a four-track to recording on a computer with GarageBand, which I still use. Um, But it was like, that was, compared to, like, the palette of sounds that I'm more familiar with now, that was very ramshackle, that, that whole album. And it was very fun to make, and I have, like, extremely distinct memories of every song, so... It's exactly as I hoped in terms of being like a document of that year of my life. It was like 2004 and five when I was 20 years old. Um, but it's also like it feels very much like it has, has its place, and I don't really play any of those songs anymore because uh, I feel like they, they belong in, in, that, in that time. Um, but yeah, I recorded that one entirely in Michigan and started my second record before moving out to Portland. Uh, f- that was Temper. I finished that one uh, during the first few months I was in Portland, like without a job and just kind of uh, getting out on my bike to every part of the city that I could possibly get out to, um, doing little, you know, solo picnics and hikes and all kinds of stuff, and just kind of familiarizing myself with the terrain. And that was that was a really meaningful experience. Um, you know, changing your surroundings can be a huge motivation to like a creative groundswell. Any any major shift in your life like that, um, I think the only other time I remember being that productive is um, just after my brother's death a couple of years ago, I kind of like, I decided to uh, make, sit down and make a piece of music every single day for a month, and like just first thought, best thought, kind of close.
2: <laughs> Should be noted here that after this interview, Thomas emailed me to clarify that stanza three, linian poise, and slow spark, soft spoke were actually the records that came from that period after his brother's passing. Stanza one and two were actually made in 2015 with a similar uh, work ethic and and kind of mode of production. Um, but after his uh, after his brother passed, the uh, the motivation and sense of vitality really ramped up. So just wanted to throw in that quick caveat. Uh,
1: um, and it's a very simple process of just one layer of clean guitar and one layer of tape guitar. Uh, you know, sandwiched together, basically, um, and it, it felt very, like, the, the off-the-cuff kind of nature of it was really satisfying to me. It felt like uh, I felt a little little guilty for how easy it was, but it's also, like, the sort of thing I could listen back to was making those pieces that are, like, four to six minutes in length. Um, I would usually leave them going, like, leave the loops going on my amp for an hour or two just to kind of, like, really feel it out and occasionally go back over and, like, add a little note here and there kind of thing, but yeah, um, as I've shifted away from wanting to write lyrics, I've gone more in the direction of, uh, in- improvisation and spontaneity, and that has been really rewarding, um, it's really, like, I still write songs from time to time, I actually wrote, um, finished a song two weeks ago, which was the first one I wrote in, like, ten months, and I don't, like, it's nice not to feel any any pressure, you know, nobody's demanding that I write songs, and it worked for a or anything like that and that's one of the things that's been uh, I think Cranky is probably the, the best label that I know of like of all the friends I have that have deals with uh, smaller labels or even like Sub Pop I know a couple of people in Seattle that work with Sub Pop and it sounds like just such a hassle and nobody ever makes any money but uh, Cranky operates in such a small um, small amount of overhead they don't advertise mm-hmm. you know, they've been around for 25 years and their name is basically their advertisement which is you know that's Pretty amazing. Yeah. Very very hard to pull off, but it's still pretty much a one man operation in Portland, and then um, Mr. Cranky, <laughs> as he prefers to be called, uh, has um, another guy, my friend Brian, who uh, I'll get to see next week when I'm on tour. Brian um, Foot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, do you work with him with promo and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He sends me a bunch of stuff. Uh, it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> what his uh, promotions company is called. Uh, his sense of humor. But yeah, Brian does all the cranky promo and his own thing on the side. Um, but essentially, it's a one man operation. There uh, was a great interview with Adam Wiltsey from Stars of the a couple years ago where they, they asked him, like, um, what's it like working with cranky? And his response, I think, basically it was just one sentence where he said, uh, I get paid every uh, every six months like clockwork. And that's, that's, it. that's, that's pretty much like, all you need to say. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's good to know that he's got. The, the ringers in there like i think he does pretty consistently well off of godspeed and deer hunter and mm-hmm. Love and all those bands and that that funds the kind of um more left of center stuff that he does yeah, as well to have passion projects that he doesn't need to guarantee
2: won't necessarily make a lot of money they've been doing some really uh, this year i think it's been a really good year for them um especially with like a seeming like a real focus on like uh in the couple of years like like female like experimental musicians um, kind, of, uh, kind of all over but especially sort of that Mills College you know like incubator of like really amazing stuff I think is really um, some of the more exciting stuff to be happening in like experimental kind of droney um, music with some very obvious like classical like music overtones and like leanings um.
1: yeah just gotta Digital promo of the Les Bells record last yeah, week. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's, 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 she's somehow made a record that sounds like Joshua Tree, which is <laughs> it's, Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very, very good. And I just got i I don't have my a way to download it um, while I'm out here, but I just got a, um, a email from Brian about the Solo lead record that's coming up yep, next I week. I just got
2: that, yeah. It's good.
1: Um, which sounds very promising. Um, but yeah, Joel, Joel is, that's one thing I appreciate, is he's, you know he's a sorry mr. Cranky he is never gonna rest on his laurels you know I think he, he might be slowing down in terms of his release schedule but he's always uh, hunting for new stuff and, that's great and has a very open mind I, I, I wait for the day when I send him something because I've sent him a few records like uh, with from friends and acquaintances and I'm like I bet mr. Cranky will love this and he's you know usually quick to respond. But so far, his just his response is usually like it's nice, but not compelling, and you know that's one thing that makes the label work too, is that he doesn't release anything that he doesn't personally enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that's also something I find very flattering. It's like yeah, uh, there's a, a great story that my friend Wendy from Wendy and Carl mm-hmm. told me a couple of years ago, where um, I think after they had done their third record for him, um, and he was still in Chicago, they were playing out there, and after the show, um, they were at the bar or whatever, um, chit chatting, and Wendy was like. You have never, like, complimented us on a set. Like, do you even like our music? And uh, Mr. Kang, he was like, Wendy, I pay my own money to release your records. Like, what more proof do you need that, right. that I like what you do? So he keeps his cards very close to his chest. Yeah. And you might be horrified that I'm talking about him so much in an interview, but I uh, anyway, got nothing but love for, for him. He's like he's kind of like a surrogate uh, father figure along with a few other people in my life that has uh, has been, like, a very meaningful guidepost along the way and, like, uh, motivator in his, in his own kind of funny way.
2: So what, um, you mentioned that after your, your brother passed away that, um, you kind of went into this really prolific, um, time where you were creating, um, like a song a day. What do you think about that event, um, spurred such like a prolific, uh, it sounds like maybe a need or um, inspiration to, to record as much as you were doing.
1: Uh, well, you know, he's my only full-blooded sibling. I have two half-sisters um, that my dad and his uh, wife had that they just turned six, uh, they're twins. And they're very sweet, but, you know, uh, Chuck, my brother, was, like, like I said, a pretty big influence on my interest in music. He never got into making music um, himself, And that was, you know, part of his issue along, like, throughout his whole life was uh, feeling I think kind of passionless and I always felt bad about that I tried to encourage him but I didn't want to be patronizing you know it's the tough line to walk with somebody who's kind of down on themselves he had a, a little bit of a misspent youth mm-hmm. and I was worried about him you know he he would even joke like uh, I think when he was in his like mid to late 20s he's like I should I should have been dead 10 times by now mm-hmm. and that sort of thing it's like all the drugs he was doing and uh, risks he was taking and he you know gotten some fights but he was like he was such a Good-natured and loving person. Like I came to realize that the only fights he ever got in were like sticking up for someone. Mm-hmm. Like if one of his female friends was taking some shit from her boyfriend or anybody at a bar, he would always step in and you know uh, do the right thing. So uh, it, was, it was just sad. He was very intelligent, uh, but just I think very very depressed and probably more so than. He wanted to let on and my mom always worried about him and i i, I had gotten to the point because he he died when he was 36 mm-hmm. like right after his 36th birthday of a heroin overdose and he had uh, he had told me a couple years before that he was never going to touch it again and i wanted to believe him and i had gotten to a point where like he was doing well he got a good job that he really liked and was like uh you know looking for was trying to get in shape because he had you know, put on some weight over the years and uh i felt like, finally at ease with where he was in life, and I, I I think it had kind of settled in the back of my mind, the, the worries that I'd had before about, you know, something happening, and then sure enough, I, I, like, two days before I was supposed to go on a five-week tour, my dad called me, and was just, like, I'm standing over your your brother, and he's mm-hmm. gone. And I was just like, uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird couple of days. I've never had such a visceral, physical reaction to something. I just, like, couldn't stop quivering the whole mm-hmm. time. I had no appetite, and in fact, it was just like dry heaving all day and i guess i don't need to go into all this but it was it, it was it was fucked and uh, i was um my wife had also just left for a business trip like the day before that so mm. uh, i was alone in the apartment with the cats and i was just like what do, what do i do like do i cancel my tour and, um that was another thing is that um i you know i talked to my mom at length about it and she was not doing well, as you would imagine, yeah. uh, and uh, she encouraged me, because it was, the tour like uh, had been set up in such a way that I left Seattle, I think I started in Minneapolis and played a few Midwest shows, and then I was going to, I had already scheduled like three days off in Michigan to spend time with family, so she, she just said like, I think you should play the first five shows, uh, and then when you get to Michigan you can kind of see how you feel, if it's like, you know, because I, I thought it could be really rewarding and, and uh, kind of good Self reflective territory to, to be on if I'm playing shows and getting lost in something that like I care about that yeah. much um, and like kind of keeping him in mind as a tribute, whatever. Um, or it could just be a crushing chore, sure. And I'm, and my, and I'm just gonna, you know, not want to be there at all, yeah. Uh, but it, luckily, I found it was much more of the former. And I, like, uh, you know, I had to cancel two shows in order to be home for the funeral service, yeah. Um, but that's you know, who's not gonna. Yeah, exactly. I, I ended up actually getting to, to go back to both those places later in the year. So, um, yeah, I was there for the for the service and then um, did the rest of the tour, and it was a total blast. It was one of the most fun times on the road that I've ever had, uh, and most successful in terms of like audiences and just how I felt about my playing. And so, you know, I, I thought of it as him kind of being in the backseat because yeah. you know, he also already uh, like, had always talked about wanted to come with me on the road even for like a few shows and see what that's what tour life is like and never got the chance and he never made it out to seattle to see us because it's another thing is that he i don't i don't really know how he spent his money but he was always pleading poverty and mm-hmm. it was kind of sad i even offered to fly him out to seattle at one point and he, i think it was too too proud to do it but mm-hmm. you know i've got a little parcel of his ashes on my desk so they're always there and i'll sometimes like uh might sound silly, but I'll sometimes, like, set them next to me on the couch if we're watching a movie. I'll, I'll, I'll like, the last time I, w- I went back and watched uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is our favorite movie as, a ki- as kids, uh, did that, and, you know, it, it felt good. Um, but, what was I going to say, oh, and I ended up going back to Michigan um, after the tour for another couple of weeks just to kind of hang out with my mom and, you know, I really, really have to make sure to stay alive now, because yeah. <laughs> if I if I disappeared, uh, that would be it for her. I think pretty much. Um, anyway, what were we talking about?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, so we were ta- The the question was, and and I think you really addressed it beautifully. Was what about that event, sort of spurred this uh, oh, right. prolific um, <clears throat> time in in your in your career? Yeah. Um, but I mean, just kind of focusing on. Um, that loss um, and y- you having the choice between canceling a tour and playing and it being um, what sounds like a pretty cathartic experience. That
1: is, yeah, catharsis is a great word for it, for sure. And I also, um, as you do when you tour, or, you know, hopefully um, the experience of playing multiple shows in a row, you kind of develop songs and you, you work with new ideas. Like even last night I scrapped two or three ideas that had been central to the set that i was playing this is like i haven't played that many shows this year but the set that i had conceived of for last night was pretty similar to uh, a couple of other recent ones and uh, at the last minute i decided i wanted to do a couple songs that i hadn't played in a while and i sort of because i had done a similar set for the radio station the night before and i was like you know if people listen to that i'd rather give them s- something different um and sometimes last minute changes can really Fuck you up and yeah. totally ruin the ruin your zone, but it actually worked out really nice. And being in a in a haunted salon like that last night yeah, was, was yeah. Pretty good, it was a nice room o- overlook hotel
2: kind of uh, yeah
1: all those paintings I think staring at me We're mo- moving uh, yeah so on that, that that was another thing about that tour like uh, I played a leg of it I think four or five of the shows with uh, Gardner my friend Dash, yeah you know, mm-hmm. um and he was like you know r- really good for conversation I, I like being sure. on the road alone. Uh, a lot of the time But in that moment It was it was really valuable To have him uh, With me for a few shows yeah. And like we had a Had a blast And we didn't really Know each other before that But we became like Super fast good, friends Good and, dude Yeah You know When you when you road dog it It's hard not to become <laughs> um, And similarly I don't really know The Hotel Neon guys That well Other than just like The email exchanges We've had about this tour But I have like Really good feelings About uh, hitting the road They seem like uh, Responsible And
2: upstanding young men mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Fine lads Yeah Um yeah, so you're he- heading on the road with Hotel Neon mm-hmm. and uh, Marcus Fisher. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one, one funny thing is that I've known Marcus for years, uh, and I've only seen him play once. Like, he's come to see me play a bunch okay. of times, and I've, like, borrowed his guitar for shows and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But when I see him, it's usually just socializing. So I'm really, yeah, really looking forward to seeing him uh, six times.
2: Yeah, I've, I guess that's a good thing about going on tour with people that you really like. It's like a show that you would normally go out of your way to see. Now it's like happening every night. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of end on um, of where things are going, you know.
1: I did want to say, because you mentioned before uh, we started rolling that uh, you were interested in knowing like, what kind of music was playing in the oh, house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was, I don't recall there being any enigma. A huge fan of uh, Annie Lennox, so I've heard the album Diva probably hundreds of times. It's pretty similar in my in my life, and uh, I credit my dad. My dad's got a super eclectic taste, so there's stuff he loves, like the oddly I think one of his favorite records is the soundtrack to the movie Six Days Seven Nights, starring Anhesh and Haitian boo somebody else I can't remember, it, but it takes place on Hawaii, and oh. like he's he lo- he loves going hiking on Hawaii
2: or on the the Kalalau Trail, which I think is where a lot of it takes place. It's just like it, I think it evokes that for him. I thought you were referring to Before Sunset with, like, the Kath Bloom. Oh, no, yeah, there's one, but uh, he also um, was, they, like, introduced
1: me to stuff like Kraftwerk and Tom Waits when I was a kid, and uh, he's a huge, yeah, huge early Tom Waits fan. He digs the the newer stuff, and I'm even kind of on the fence about a lot of it, but, yeah, Small Change and uh, Nighthawks at the Diner and, gosh, what else, Uh, Blue Valentine, especially, are still favorite records of mine. But that kind of goes against my what I was saying about male vocalists i guess that's the exception, yeah, that's exception the, to the, the rule exact, yeah that's the exact like that is the <laughs>
2: exception to like <laughs> most male like just vocalists like what they can how much damage they can sustain to their vocal cords or maybe just can't kind of like arrive. his vocal cords are just like permanently fucked you know yeah. and that's just as normal so
1: yeah I, I developed a very early love for for craft work uh, even though like i was i grew up with kind of gravitating towards more more rock and roll never got into you know punk i guess nirvana was the closest i can mm-hmm. to punk and i'm like they were, i'd say the more influenced than influencing of, of that kind of genre
2: that's funny because i started <laughs> with enigma and then very quickly like gravitated to like punk and hardcore and okay. like <laughs> some of the most like dissonant like aspects of um like punk and hardcore um Yeah, I had
1: a harsh noise phase in the early 2000s. There was a spot in Detroit called the Detroit Art Space that was there for about two years, and I think I was at, or I want to say I was at, probably, like, three-quarters of the shows there. And it was, like, my very dense, uh, short-lived and thorough education on that genre, and I pretty much left it behind. uh, Yeah, I mean, you were, like, that is, you were in the right place for it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cotton Museum and all those those dudes. Uh, But one crucial moment that i wanted to mention was, yeah. was uh, being at my friend ryan's house in seventh grade and uh, he was like you should see this video uh where we, we stayed up and watched 120 minutes um, and he was like i really hope they played this video and it was come to daddy by fx twin
2: oh my god <clears throat> talking about like a yeah. scary yeah. video that i that, that was <sighs> scared
1: that the video was totally terrifying even though i was like 13 and i was like i can handle this <laughs> um but I didn't really, like, <clears throat> it didn't grab me at first, but there was something about it that kind of stuck with me. And then when I was at uh, Record Town, where they had the listening stations uh, the week after, probably, I was like, oh, I recognize that. Those, those are the creepy kids from the video. And I listened to, uh, I, like, skipped that song. I was like, I really want to know what else this guy makes. And then track two on that is "Flim," yeah. which is, like, the most, one of the most beautiful, yeah. perfectly programmed songs of all time. And I was just like, all right. I'm done with guitars for a while now. <laughs> like, like, I'm just gonna go. I went whole hog into Warp Records, and just like that was also their, I think, in my opinion, their peak era, like '97 to 2003 or four. I bought you know, just about every Warp record, and um, that's when I, you know, got into Boards of Canada, which have been hugely influential. Nice, me. yeah. It was my first tattoo.
2: Yeah, the, yeah. I see, I see a lot of similarities between Boards of Canada, sort of like warped, mm-hmm. you know, sounds. Yeah, and I, I, I
1: can't, can't deny that massive influence of what they do, the kind of, uh, I was talking to, gosh, who just asked me about favorite records of theirs, oh, um, my friend Derek was, was visiting, I, th- I had one of the records on, and he asked me what my f- favorite Boards of Canada album is, and I really had to think about it, but I think it's got to be *Geogaddi* because there's like mm-hmm. such a dark undercurrent mm-hmm. uh, beneath such an incredibly beautiful record and i think that's what i really have if i aimed for anything over the years it's it's that kind of balance between the darkness and the light you know trying to make something beautiful that also
2: isn't sweet you know yeah if that makes sense yeah um there's a heavy undercurrent of that in in your your music for sure there's a uh on this on the surface it's ostensibly a very beautiful it's very beautiful music but I, I think like most music that i'm <clears throat> I naturally gravitate towards and I think has like the most staying power that there is um there's something operating below the surface um, maybe even reflected in the way that you said you recorded um uh was it stanza where you had um kind of like the clean guitar line Mm -hmm. and then like the tape like warbly like guitar line there's yeah there's the what you see and what you hear and then what is happening below the surface where you either have to sort of finally like attune your ear to it or just surrender to like the song itself and have it kind of like come up below like mm. even what you're actively listening to to inform sort of like the mood or like the vibe of uh, of a song yeah absolutely subliminal <laughs> well I'm
1: glad it, it at least sort of comes across that way because yeah there's um, I think life is a really precious thing there's nothing you know it's like uh, my favorite line from one of my favorite movies, uh, Gummo, is when the kid says, life is great, without it you'd be dead. It's like that's pretty much all there is to it, yeah. and I think we overcomplicate it way too much sometimes, and um, I don't want to get too far down that road, but in any case, I, I acknowledge the heaviness, and I, f- I find that music has been a really... Uh, essential way to kind of expunge that heaviness from myself because, like, I think there have been people who've met me and expected me to be like a very dour person. Mm-hmm. I think, and I really try and try not to be. You know, I've got got my own uh, cynical bent sometimes, curmudgeonliness, but I think that's healthy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is an even better place to <laughs> stop. So, thank you so much, Thomas, for yeah, sitting down and chatting with me. It's been a really nice chat in this like really beautiful space Perfect, yeah, yeah.
1: really great festival like you know, Dante last night and the so, was yeah
2: quite a, quite a the the duality of uh, <laughs> I put on a f- show. That's great. oh my god he's so good um yeah i i told him that um watching him perform would be similar to seeing like black flag in like the early 80s <laughs> um where they're ch- channeling something within, like, youth culture that isn't defined yet. Mm-hmm. That, like, it's just starting off, like, down this road, and there really isn't, like, much of, like, a reference point to anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, the form is there, but it's just, like, they're kind of, like, pulling from all of these, like, disparate, like, things that are just in the air with, I don't think, like, zero fucks given to, like,
1: Takes on yeah <laughs>
2: you know to like oh we're sampling like this you know like footwork you know album that has like this history or you know um yeah so it's really inspiring to see um hip-hop kind of be this like transcendent like genre that like just kind of like consumes like everything like in its wake and just like and when it's like when it does that with like obvious like talent and like just I don't know just like this authentic- insane yeah authenticity and energy that like we saw last night it's um, yeah it has the bil- the ability to sort of like transcend everything like there was like that lady there who was seventy nine who was in the front row and she was like loving it you know she, she was she
1: if you're talking about the same person yep yeah, um, we are. Yeah. Uh, she- to compliment my show out uh, as well yeah. so it's
2: like it's she, right she know, went from yeah she that. went from the, the Benoit Pilar Glenn Jones show to the Eric Conte show and was loving it on all sorts of different levels yeah for sure cool. well thanks thanks again